With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Tom Fox, and I'm extraordinarily pleased and honored to bring to you this 500th episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I felt this was a very special episode for me, primarily because of so much I've learned over the past eight years in this podcast journey. Last week, I had five of the top compliance commentators about changes in compliance they have seen from their perspective. And that leads to today where I wanted to take the opportunity to visit about some of the key changes I've seen in compliance, the numbers on some of the podcasts I have had over the past uh, 500 episodes, and some of my top guests that I've really enjoyed and developed a connection with because of these podcasts. I'm interviewed by Greg Greenberg. Greg is the general manager of C-Suite Radio. He worked on the Kramer Show and a number of other business and financial analysis reporting shows. So I was honored that Greg would interview me for my 500th episode. I hope you will enjoy this episode as much as I had uh, enjoyment in not only researching it, but being interviewed by Greg and producing it. I hope you will continue the journey with me on the FCPA Compliance Report as I next strive for a thousand shows. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to being with you again. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the 500th episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm Greg Greenberg. I'm the general manager of C-Suite Radio. And I'm very excited to be hosting this particular podcast because it features one of our favorite, uh, one of our top hosts, Tom Fox. Uh, he's been doing this for a long time. Uh, so I'm going to be asking about the podcast, what he's been doing over the past 10 years or so, how it's evolved, some of the changes and, and the things that he's seen in the industry and how those things have evolved. I think we're going to talk about politics. We may talk a little bit of European soccer because I know he loves his Liverpool. We may venture off into some rock and roll because I know he loves his classic rock as well. But first of all, I want to welcome the man himself, Tom Fox. How Are you excited about this? This is a big show, man. It's a big show. I'm, I'm very excited, but I'm even more excited to have you guest host, Greg. I've known Greg now for a couple of years. Uh, we've got to be friends uh, through my joining the C-Suite Radio. He's a great guy. He's been a great guy to work with. And uh, he's a great host. So I figured for this special episode, I would ask him to host because that's a part of his story as well. So, Greg, thank you so much for uh, doing this to help me celebrate my 500th episode. All right. So let's just kick it off. Let's go back about 10 years. Um, what was the inspiration for you to start this podcast? So, Greg, in uh, 2011, a colleague of mine uh, named Howard Sklar approached me about doing a podcast with him. And we did. It was the original incarnation of This Week in FCPA. Unfortunately, Howard went to the corporate world and had to uh, stop doing podcasting and went to uh, J.P. Morgan in compliance. And uh, after about a year or 18 months, uh, I missed doing podcasting. I missed uh, talking. And so I decided to uh, 
start my own podcast. There were no other podcasting compliance at that time. So I had the field open to me and I thought this is a great new medium. I'm a, a fond uh, aficionado of the social media world for communication. So I started the F, um, FCPA compliance report. Okay. So here's the one thing. Whenever I listen to your podcast and I love them, it's acronym soup. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, correct? Correct. All right. So you got to promise me for the rest of this podcast, because I know a lot of your listeners, they know the acronyms, you know, they understand the acronym soup. So, but we're going to start from the very beginning. So we even have to identify and, and define FCPA. But let's, can we just go back a little bit before you, you, you started the podcast? So you're a, you're a lawyer dealing with, dealing with uh, the FCPA, dealing with compliance. Now, did you just hate the law? I mean, I have a brother and sister, and, and they complain about being lawyers all the time. We've all heard the lawyer jokes. But is that what caused you to say, you know something, I'm just tired of practicing law. I want to be in entertainment, but I don't want to leave the law entirely behind. No, it was a little bit different journey. I was, uh, after my last corporate position, I went off on a great adventure to race bicycles. And I did that for about a year until one Saturday training ride. I had a Hummer bicycle event, uh, and that ended my cycling career. And so after about eight weeks of convalescence, and when I had enough energy to get on my walker and toddle into my office, I realized I was going to have to go back to work. While I was racing, I said I was working, but I didn't have any clients and I didn't have any work. So, uh, And at that point, uh, this is now 2010, there were very few lawyers in private practice who did compliance work. And I mean corporate compliance. There were lawyers who did investigations. There were lawyers who negotiated with the government. I didn't want to do either of those two. So because I was laid up, I started exploring the world of social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, blogging, and all of that led to uh, becoming much more familiar with the social media world, social media tools that allowed me to create at that time, literally a worldwide compliance practice out of my office. Uh, So podcasting was a natural extension of that. Uh, There's one other reason, which was when I started this podcast, my daughter was uh, 16 and Dad was decidedly uncool. I went to her one day and I said, honey, if I had a own show on iTunes, would that be cool? And she goes, yeah, dad, that'd be cool. I could tell all my friends that, you know, my dad, he's on iTunes. So I thought, you know, if you can do marketing, it's at no cost or little cost and you can be cool in your daughter's eyes. Doesn't get much better than that. Very, very cool. Hey, another thing that happened, you know, people are starting to forget about it now because of the current pandemic, but Another thing that happened is when you started your podcast, we were just a few years from the financial crisis when all of a sudden people were paying attention to things like the decisions that boards make or the decisions that companies make, the decisions that management make, both nationally and internationally. Can you just talk a little bit about what was going on in the industry back in 2012, 2013, when you were just kicking off? Yeah, Greg, and that's a, that's a greater point. Perhaps that's the bigger point of uh, all of this compliance uh, compliance had been around sort of since Sarbanes-Oxley and Enron and WorldCom, but the financial crisis put a spotlight on those issues that you exactly identified. Corporate governance, do you have financial controls in place? Are they overriding those financial controls? Is there a policy? Is there a procedure? Are people following the policy and procedure? Those are all compliance issues. They, we just call them financial controls issues. So having that uh, part of the discussion after the financial crisis uh, was a big part of driving compliance forward as well. See, the compliance officer in an investment bank or in a brokerage house, and in most companies, is generally the person that tells the sales guy no. 
So whether it be at Enron or WorldCom, these are basically places where the salesmen were let run wild. And even if there was a compliance officer, they were just run roughshod over. Can you just talk a little bit about what the role of the compliance officer was with regard to sales back in those times? Because, you know, I got to say, ever since that time, you know, when you look on Wall Street and other places, the compliance officer, that role has really grown, not just in, in pay, but in esteem as well. Sure. And that's one of the, I think, three biggest changes I've seen in the past 10 years or so. When I started in compliance, uh, which was uh, 07, compliance was, uh, the chief compliance officer was Dr. No, and he inhabited the land of no. And you're a business guy, you know that gets business nowhere. And not only do they not like that, well, they'll quit going to compliance because they know what the answer is and they don't want to be told no. Uh, And so that was... um, the situation was that compliance was a legal solution written by lawyers for lawyers. And it needs to be a business solution and it needs to be crafted for the sales guy. You need to be able to come to me and say, Tom, I have this issue. How can I do it? Uh, Not whether I can do it. How can I do it? And I give you a solution and it doesn't take me two weeks to come up with that solution. It takes me two hours and I present it to you. And then you go off and make the sale and generate profits and ROI for the company. So there's always a friction between the compliance officer and sales. So over the past 10 years, can you just talk about where are we right now, I guess? You know, how has it evolved? Where are we right now? Is when you, when now we're in you know, the economy, we're trying to get it to move or it's moving a little bit more. Uh, those are the times when the salesman's winning as opposed to compliance. And then you get a, you get a big problem and then compliance winning. Sounds like it's a never ending battle. Sure. And that's really uh, the evolution I've seen of compliance. As we, as we move compliance away from a paper program to a business process, to really being seen as a financial control, we see the compliance officer making compliance more effective, making business processes more efficient, that leading to greater profitability and greater ROI. Compliance is now seen as uh, a partner of the business unit because it's not only going to keep the business unit out of trouble, but it's going to give the business unit a competitive advantage over its customers. If you can move more quickly, if you can do a merger and acquisition more quickly because you are more nimble, if you can move into a risky market where the profit margins are always greater in risky markets, that's the nature of risk. The more risk, the greater profit. And if you can manage that risk more quickly, more efficiently, and protect the business guy, protect the company, the company's going to make more money out of it. And that's the inflection point we're at now. You're absolutely right. In this economic environment, there's greater risk. There's greater risk in supply chain. We can't use our, uh, we may not because of the pandemic, be able to use our regular suppliers. We may have our markets have changed. We're obviously all virtually working and working from home. Those are different risks. So if the compliance professional can help manage those risks and manage them in a way that is more efficient, that's going to make the sales guy uh, have a better chance to beat his competitors. Let's talk about the Department of Justice, because uh, we're going to have to get into politics at some point in this conversation. So how has the Department of Justice evolved when it comes to uh, FCPA issues over the past 10 years, as you've been doing the show? So that's been an equally interesting evolution. And what we've seen from the Department of Justice, really starting in 2012, because they released a one-volume guide called the FCPA Resource Guide. It was the single best book 
of resources to the FCPA. It had the statute in it. It had the relevant case law. It had interpretations, the DOJ interpretations. It had laws that were ancillary to the uh, department of, uh, to the FCPA, such as money laundering and trade sanctions, things like that. And most importantly, they came up with a formulation which they called the 10 Hallmarks of an Effective Compliance Program. That was the first time the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission, because this was a joint document, set down what they their thoughts of an effective compliance program were. And that gave every person like myself, every compliance practitioner, a written roadmap, literally from the government, on how do you pr- not simply protect the company, but if something does go wrong, you can sh- say to the government and show the government, look, here's what we did. Here's the steps we took. We followed the 10 hallmarks. Yes, we had a problem, but we cleaned the problem up after we found out about it. These were what we tried to do to prevent it. So that was a seminal uh, event. And the Department of Justice since that time has refined those 10 hallmarks. They've gotten more sophisticated. They now see compliance as a business process. And in fact, we had two releases of information literally over the past two months, the first of which emphasized data analytics. And this is the first time the DOJ said, you need access to data and you need to look at that data. And then you need to take that data in a continuous loop and loop it back in uh, for continuous improvement of your compliance program. So the DOJ has evolved in their thinking of what has been a uh, effective compliance program. Now, do you see differences between an Obama Biden DOJ, where you know, versus a Trump Pence DOJ, or is it basically you know, look, you have the same uh, bureaucrats who are just going to be in there the whole time. So you, you know, you may see changes at the top, but it's not affecting uh, you. Uh, the folks you deal with on a daily basis? It's really the latter, Greg. Uh, The professionals, uh, civil servants in the Department of Justice down in the fraud section, down in the FCPA unit, they were there in the Bush administration. They were there in the Obama administration. And they're there in the Trump administration. Just uh, and uh, whatever you may or may not think of the Trump administration, this year had two of the largest FCPA cases in the history of the world ever. Which ones? So it was uh, Airbus uh, was the largest. That was a part of an international uh, effort. And then Novartis was uh, interesting because it was both uh, international FCPA, but also U.S. domestic corruption. So Airbus, I think, was might have been the biggest settlement ever. So uh, and, and it's interesting because right, you're, you're bringing up international and it and, and compliance officers. They need to know not just what's going on in the U.S., but they need to know what's going on in Europe and China as well. So just thinking back to some of the big ones, uh, you know, you have a lot of French banks. I think Society Generale had a big settlement. Some of the Swedes, you know, it's funny because everyone talks about uh, on the campaign show how great Sweden is. But I remember Ericsson had a big had a big settlement. Petrobras was a big one that you and I discussed for a while. So can you just talk about crises or foreign settlements or foreign issues compared to the ones that we see here in the U.S.? Right. Who's got it bigger? Who's the best when it comes to the settlements and, and, and corruption? So uh, F's, uh, obviously uh, Airbus is the largest. The interesting thing about Airbus was it was a French, U.K., U.S. settlement. The U.S. was the smallest part. Uh, we've had multiple uh, international settlements. We talked about Petrobras. There's also Odebrecht. Uh, there's Rolls-Royce. In all of those, the U.S. took uh, the smaller part of the settlement because the enforcement agencies from those countries took the lead. And there's now a concept of worldwide one resolution, or they call it a uniform resolution. 
And it simply means that there's one payment by a company and it may go to multiple countries. The, the, what the U.S. has in that situation, it's the only country that's been prosecuting corruption for so long. They have the cachet to really lead that discussion. So the U.S. may look up, appear to be getting less money, but they are really the one who have led those discussions to come to one resolution. Let's just jump over to China for a second, because obviously China's in the news, especially with the, uh, the Trump administration. For a while, it was bribery was a big thing in China, right? So why don't you just expand a little bit, maybe even remember a, from one of your podcasts or one of your guests you had that came on to talk about bribery in China. Uh, China has been a huge problem for U.S. companies. Literally in the past 10 years, 25% of all FCPA cases have come out of China. And uh, it's for several reasons. One was the culture of China uh, sort of fostered that. But more importantly, U.S. companies didn't understand how the Chinese would do business. So typically, the U.S. company would uh, partner with a Chinese company in some way, and then they would joint venture with them in a more formal relationship. That joint venture, uh, then the U.S. company would buy out the Chinese company's joint venture interest. So the Chinese business, it became a Chinese business unit. So there was a clear progression. However, the U.S. company won because of China data privacy laws. They really never got a good look at the financial statements. The auditing requirements are different. Um, there's no gap in China. And U.S. companies didn't understand the Chinese business model. They didn't understand the figures, and they certainly didn't understand how the Chinese uh, management would lead the company. So the Chinese company was engaging in bribery corruption. They continued to do so when they were a joint venture. And then, then when they became a business unit of Tom Fox Petroleum Company. Well, now it was Tom Fox Petroleum Company that was engaging in bribery and corruption. Can you talk about the cultural differences, though? Because a lot of times when there's a bribery case, people say that's just what they do over there, you know, or nepotism. You know, that's just, you hire this guy's kid. You know, bring those two things together. I mean, is it the, the culture of it, or this is, or it's illegal? Well, it's clearly illegal in in China specifically. It's illegal under Chinese law. In fact, the largest anti-corruption settlement action uh, sort of in the China arena was a Chinese domestic case against the British pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline or GSK. So the Chinese, when it's in their interest, will prosecute a Western company for bribery in China. So everybody knows it's illegal, whether it's uh, part of the culture or, or not, it's still invidious. And what about particular industries? We talked about Petrobras, but there were also a whole lot of FCPA issues when it comes to the energy. Uh, you're talking when you're talking about drilling in some of the former Soviet republics. Uh, there's always there was always a lot of uh, of issues there when it comes to bribing. You know, in the Middle East, when it comes to oil, and I, I understand you're you're you know oil. You're, you're not only are you the voice of compliance, but you're down in Houston, so you have to know a thing or two about oil. Why is it so prevalent in the in the energy complex? Well, for reasons unclear to me, the Almighty put oil in places like West Africa, Central Asia, the Far East, not in places like Singapore. Um, they, there is some in the North Sea, so there is a little there. But places that were prone to corruption, those are the ones that have the energy curse. And what happened in energy is, this is a little bit before 10 years ago, but the first industry sweep of FCPA cases came out of energy. So in the last, in the first decade of this year, we had uh, multiple cases in energy. But what happened was the Department of Justice kind of figured out a pattern. And 
when they figured a pattern out, they would then go in and sweep an industry. So they figured out how what the linchpin in energy was, and that was a logistics company called Panalpina. Well, then they went to um, pharmaceuticals, and they figured out the distribution model in pharmaceuticals. And once they figured that out, they swept through pharmaceuticals. Well, then they went to telecom. And once again, when they figured out how the telecom companies distributed products uh, through sales agents or other third parties outside the U.S., then they swept through that industry. Uh, then they went to private equity, and now they're back uh, uh, now to pharmaceuticals. So what the DOJ and SEC have done is literally have these industry sweeps. So it appears that multiple companies are being targeted. And what's happening, I think, more is they're just figuring out the sales model, and then they're prosecuting based on their knowledge. Should we expect tech maybe to be next? Uh, you know, look, you have a lot of tech monopolies. You have uh, you know, your, your Ubers, your Facebooks, your Googles. So, I mean, these are names that are popping up, uh, and clearly there's politicians and people gunning for them on both sides. Uh, your view is, is tech going to be the next up? You know, once again, we've seen FCPA come through when it comes to energy and, and telecom. Tech next? Tech was, uh, had an in- industry sweep, but it was focused more on hardware and software more than the, the Facebook, Google's, Amazon, right. they may have antitrust issues. That's a separate problem, not an FCPA problem. Can we just talk a little bit about whistleblowers? Because that was a big thing during when you were first starting off your podcast. You know, people were uh, at the banks. They, they passed a lot of whistleblower uh, laws after the, the, the financial crisis, 2008, 2009. Have whistleblowers... Have they gotten? Have they gotten their due? I mean, you don't really hear much about them anymore. And then when you do hear about them, it, it kind of seems like they're taking a long time to get their money, and the people aren't sure whether or not it was actually worth it. It's interesting you bring that up. I had a friend start his own podcast, and his first guest was Sherry Watkins, who was the original Enron whistleblower. So it's obviously been around quite some time. You're also correct, Greg, that the Dodd Frank legislation created a bounty for whistleblowers who whistleblow to the SEC. And if the SEC is successful in uh, recovering money from a recalcitrant company, they get a piece of it up to 30%. That has been a hugely successful program for the SEC. Literally hundreds of millions of dollars in bounties have been paid out based upon billions of dollars of settlements. It's created a cottage industry and their lawyers who specialize only in that. Uh, they do uh, raise issues about length of time to get payment. But the what that has driven is companies to understand that it's not the whistleblower, it's the trust your employees have to raise their hand and speak up. If you can't go into your supervisor and say, hey, I thought I saw something or you know, see something, say something, whatever it is, whether it's about bribery and corruption, whether it's about sexual harassment, whether it's about uh, some other issue, you don't have a very good corporate culture. So companies have come to realize if employees feel like they can raise their hand and speak up, that's going to make the company better and stronger, not simply because uh, it's going to stop illegal conduct, but it's going to bring forward good ideas that people want to put forward. Can you think of some of your favorite guests over the course of the last five? I know, look, it's 500 episodes. I don't know how many Seinfeld did, but I don't know, I don't know if it's that much, but 500 is a whole lot of episodes. So can you talk about, are there any shows that really stick out to you? So uh, uh, I had an occasion to, to take a look back at the numbers uh, for this in preparation for this podcast, and I was rather stunned to see that my number one podcast with nearly 10,000 downloads 
was with a guy named David Klotz who wrote a book entitled, and you'll love this, Financial Regulation and Compliance. How exciting is that? Grab but it was apparently very exciting. Uh, Matt Kelly and I did a podcast. Matt's now the coolest guy in compliance. And it was uh, number two, and it was so popular, he and I decided to start our own podcast series, which we did, Compliance into the Weeds. I was extremely pleased to see the following. My number four top podcast was the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, the original series. <laughs> There's a couple of guys uh, who were doing every Star Trek episode ever, and it's a, like a 20-year podcast series. And somehow I met one of them and we did a podcast on it and it was just great fun talking. I'm a huge original series fan, huge Star Trek fan. So uh, that was in my top five. Those are some of the uh, podcasts that really stick out to me. But the other, the other thing, Greg, is the, the thing I really love about podcasting is just talking to people. I've learned so much uh, just being a host. Uh, But uh, a few times that really stand out is where I've had, an incredible chemistry with a guest. Uh, and there was one guy named Mike DiBernardis. He's a lawyer at Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. And literally five minutes into the podcast, we were answering each other's questions. We were then asking each other questions. And this was over, you know, a video chat. This wasn't even live to live. And I, I've never had that kind of uh, repartee and rapport with someone so quickly. Uh, and so he and I tried to do a podcast once a quarter just because we we hit it off that well. Um, there's a guy named James Kukios. James is a former DOJ lawyer in the FCPA unit, and he's at a law firm called Morrison and Forster. And he and I have close to that repartee and uh, rapport. And those are two of the guys that I really enjoyed the most. They're incredibly knowledgeable. So it's complete geekness, but it's geekness that's fun. Is there a screenplay or a play that you would write? If you Of all the cases you've come across or have discussed in like the last 500 episodes, or even before that, is there, is there, is there something you say, you know something, this, this would be great for a, for a, a movie or, or, or a play, or even a documentary. I mean, after you're down in Enron country, they had, what was it, the smartest guys in the room? I think that might have been the, the, uh, the documentary. Is, is there is there one that maybe most people don't know about where you say, you know something, this was an interesting case and it would be great if we could see it uh, either as a, as a, as a documentary or, or a narrative for a feature of some sort? Well, first of all, when I tell people these stories, they and they're not in our field, they look at me and said, you made that up. Nobody's that stupid. People don't do that. I'm like, yeah, they do. And then the other thing is fiction has to make sense. You can't write fiction that no one will believe unless it's science fiction. And that's the, that's the way these cases are. No one would believe it. Literally this month or within the past two weeks, we had a case where a company was paying bribes in bags of cash and they paid out so much bribes and their bookkeeping was in Mexico and their bookkeeping was so poor, they couldn't even account for the bribes they paid. Uh, and they said that in the settlement order. So uh, it's, it's, you know, bags of cash across the border, uh, payment directly, payments indirectly, uh, trips, uh, gold watches. Uh, at one point at Petro, uh, Petavesa, which is the Venezuelan national oil company, it, was, uh, it cost a Rolex to get a meeting. Unbelievable. That was one of my favorite ones. Is there any 
settlement where you said, you know something, that was just wrong. They got off too easy on that one. They should have they they should have put them under. They should have put them out of business, like 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 an Enron, for example. In um, the early part of this decade, we saw settlements that did make us scratch our heads. And there was one called Parker Drilling. Parker Drilling had uh, C-suite involvement in the bribes. You had the general counsel and the chief financial officer officer approving bribes. They got a discount. There's a a sentencing range guidelines for fines and penalties, and a big calculation goes into that. Well, they got a discount off the minimum low end, and none of us could figure out how that happened or why that happened. Well, the situation was we didn't know all the facts, and what the facts were was the DOJ had started giving credit to companies who put in a uh, extensive remediation program after the fact. And that's what Parker Drilling did. And they cooperated extensively with the Department of Justice. We didn't know that at the time. And it later became clear that it happened. So that's sort of one situation. The other situation is it's really not in the department's interest to put uh, a company out of work or uh, out of business rather. And if we can go back to Enron, uh, people always talk about Arthur Anderson. Well, yeah, they were so evil, they should have been put out of business. Well, number one, you know, we went from a big four worldwide to a big three. That did nobody any good. Number two, where do you think all those Arthur Anderson partners went? Do you think they stopped doing accounting work? No, they just went to other firms. So uh, I'm not sure putting companies out of business is the answer either. So here's a question, though. It's from an investing perspective. Uh, having seen so many of these cases, is it possible for you to – look at a company, whether it be in their financials or just the news clippings and say, you know something, something's going on here. Maybe I'll short the company. Maybe I won't buy that stock. Do you have, can, can you get a feeling, a spidey sense, if you will, just by being a, around so long and seeing so many things go wrong? Giving investment advice is probably not the top thing of uh, I should do for anyone. But I would say it all turns on corporate culture. If you've got a CEO who is uh, has one sexual harassment case, two, 10, that speaks to a culture which allows rule skirt. I think that's probably the biggest sign is when you have a corrupt corporate culture, which allows either the override of financial controls or the complete disregard of financial controls. That's when you see a company uh, get in trouble in a lot of other areas. It all starts at the top. A few more questions because I'm having a whole lot of fun. Hopefully you are as well. Have there been any occurrences where you felt like, you know, I just got this one uh, way wrong. I guess as you've, you know, you, when you were starting off, you know, 10 years ago in 2013, you say, you know something, uh, I think that we're heading this way and we just headed in an entirely different way. And now looking back after 10 years, you say, you know something, got that one wrong. Uh, actually, that's pretty easy. The answer is no. And I say it's no, because I bill my podcast and I bill it and I sell it to guests as, It's a virtual cup of coffee with Tom. It's just a conversation like you and I are having. There's no right and wrong or wrong. And if I have a guest that's an expert in the subject matter area, I might disagree with them, but they're not going to get it wrong. And if they, if I disagree with them, it's because I want their opinion out there and I want to have a debate about it. So it's not, I don't feel like I've ever gotten one wrong. There's some early ones I look at and cringe the way I looked or the way I sounded, but uh, that's a different topic. All right, and then look. I mean, look. You want to give any any forecast going forward for the industry? Where do you think we're headed from here? And will it matter? You know, 
Will the pandemic weigh on things? Will the election weigh on things? The one thing I've discovered, or I guess I've ascertained from this pandemic is trends that were in play in 2018, 2019 have moved exponentially faster. And the podcast world is in that trend. We were trending up. We've been trending up for five or 10 years. And the the format of podcast is uh, perfect for this point in time where we can't get together. But I think it's going to be a key element of every company and every significant person going forward. It is a way for you to market yourself in a way that is unlike any other. It is an intimate format. Uh, it's it's having a it's you and I having a conversation, but more importantly, we're going to have a conversation with the guests who listen to this podcast. You know, they're going to be in earbuds. They're going to be we're going to be in their head, and uh, that uh, cannot be underestimated. And for every business, this is a piece of content marketing that you cannot do without. Um, so I think it's only going to get bigger and better. Okay, two final questions. First of all, as I said at the top, you are a European soccer aficionado. What happens if Messi goes to Man City? What does that mean for Liverpool, which is your favorite, of course? It means nothing. We're going <laughs> to kick their ass. Okay. We will never walk alone. Okay. Another thing which a lot of your listeners may or may not know is that you are a connoisseur of chicken wings. So what makes for the perfect chicken wing, Tom Fox? What makes for the perfect chicken wing is the following. First of all, you baste your chicken wing in your hot sauce before you put it in the deep fryer. Then you deep fry it for four minutes. You pull it out and you rebaste for another 30 seconds. And what happens is the hot sauce soaks into the partially cooked wing. Then you put it in the deep fryer for another four minutes and cook it again. Then you pull them out and uh, go through the cycle one more time. So you have 12 minutes of deep frying, depending on the heat and can give you the texture uh, so it, that's the cooking process. The part two, which I should have started with, is the wing itself. Uh, and the perfect buffalo wing is called a yellow wing. And what a yellow wing is, it's just a regular chicken wing that in the processing plant they hit with extreme heat. And what that does is it draws the natural oils of the chicken meat to the sur- just below the surface, right below the skin. And so the frying, when you do that and you have that kind of wing, you don't have to baste it. You don't have to put it in flour. You don't have to put it in a mix. You can literally fry it in its own oil. And if you can fry it in its own oil, then you can do that basting process. And then the sauce cooks a little bit into the meat so that it's not simply on the, the crust or the the outer skin. So uh, I believe me, I've studied this a lot. That is a drop mic. Uh, you know, if, you're, if your mic wasn't attached to, that, to the post in front of you, you would have to just pick it up and drop it. So any, any final words on this, your 500th podcast? This has been a whole lot of fun. It, it has been. I w- really wanted to thank you for um, uh, hosting me on this. And if I could, I'd like to say a word about C-Suite Radio because it's been my privilege to, and how we became associated is I joined C-Suite Radio. And the reason I joined C-Suite Radio was a couple of reasons. Number one, C-Suite Radio is the largest business podcast literally in the world. And uh, I don't know how many shows there are on there now, but I wanted to be the ethics and compliance guy on C-Suite Radio. And so I have 10 shows on C-Suite Radio. I'm extraordinarily proud. But there's something else for every business person out there, and here's what it is. I met Jeffrey Hazlett at a conference in Orlando, 
and uh, went up, introduced myself. We talked talked a few minutes and gave him my business card. Uh, he flew back to New York that night. That night, I had an email from him. And if you want to get someone's attention, you respond to them. And then he turned me over to you and your team, and you guys were incredibly responsive. <clears throat> so if you are, and it, it doesn't matter if you're in sales or if you're in compliance, if you want to get someone's attention, respond to their emails and respond to them in a timely manner. And that impressed me as much as anything. Well, thank you so much for the shout out. Thank you so much for, you know, giving, giving me the steering wheel to drive your podcast, you know, this afternoon. And we look forward to the next 500. Thank you, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you once again for listening to this episode, my 500th anniversary episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Thank you again for being a part of my journey. I hope you will continue to be with me. Also, I would like to give a shout out to Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, and Jay Rosen, who were a part of my one-week lead-up to the 500th anniversary, where they each gave their perspective on compliance for the past 10 years, so check them out. I hope you will also check out the Compliance Podcast Network, where we now have 40 podcasts in about all different types, shades, forms, and stories around compliance. So check out the Compliance Podcast Network going forward. Thanks again for listening. This special edition 500th anniversary has been a production of the Compliance Podcast Network with a huge shout out to Greg Greenberg, General Manager at C-Suite Radio, also to C-Suite Radio for hosting me as the ethics and compliance guy on the largest business podcast network in the world, C-Suite Radio. So check that out as well. Thank you very much. And I look forward to visiting with you again next week on the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.